0: Hello and welcome to the Millennial Ag Podcast, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today. Your co-hosts, Valine Likely and Katherine Lotzbeach.
1: Welcome to this week's episode, where we're going to dive into part two of our discussion on agricultural civil war. I am Valine Likely, and I'm the beef girl on this, the Millennial Ag Podcast. We are excited to dive into week two. We feel like we had a great week one and got some great feedback. Go ahead and email us or rate us on your favorite platform as well. We want to hear from you, our listeners. We did
0: have a great week. This is Catherine. I am the dairy girl part of this duo, and we're excited for um, our next episode, which is part two of Agriculture Civil War.
1: We are going to dive into a little bit about um, the conflicts within individual industries. Catherine, did you want to expand a little bit on what we're going to discuss?
0: So last week we talked about the civil war within agriculture um, as as a whole within the different sectors of agriculture, meaning um, you know beef and dairy guys don't get along, crop and livestock guys don't get along, um, that sort of situation. This week we're focusing on the civil war between individual production practices in agriculture, and what what our focus here is today is to take a look at how. Um, different segments of the industry produce agricultural products differently and um, maybe don't get along with each other as well as as one would hope even though we're all producing food. So think about um, conventional production practices versus organic production practices. Think of big versus small operations. Think of um, natural versus Conventional again. Um, even east versus west. You know, there's a lot of a lot of differences between how people farm on the east side of the Mississippi versus the western part of the United States.
1: And we're excited to dive into this episode because our families have over the years diversified. I'd say in the last, for me, last three, four, five years, um, and how how this discussion has kind of stemmed and some of our passion behind each of that. Um, I'll dive into my family. I grew up, I'm a fifth-generational farmer and rancher. My grandfather was purebred Herefords. Um, my parents started breed, breeding black bulls and went, convent, went from seed stock to um, commercial cow-calf and supplied the majority of our beef to the conventional chain and so forth and continued to grow the herd that way. Um, And are continuing to grow that herd, that herd still sound and still conventional. And then we've diversified a little bit and gone with the country natural beef and desert mountain beef, which are both uh, GAP certified through Whole Foods and provide the consumer with a variety of different options, whether it's GAP 3 or 4 and then grass finished and then some crossbred with some Akaushi, which is the black wagyu, and if you're not familiar with the black wagyu, um, it's a Japanese breed of cattle. So if you ever hear me talk about our squishies, that's what we're talking about. (laughs) So that's kind of how we've diversified, still have conventional, but are still also provide um, natural and grass finished as well. So Val,
0: the natural question here is um, why did your family decide to do that? Was conventional not working? Was it was it a financial situation? Did they want to expand?
1: How come your family decided to do that? Yeah. So after um, my brother and I kind of graduated from high school, uh, my parents really started looking at what it might look like for him and I to get back to the farm and ranch. And and while neither one of us had committed or wanted to, they had they saw the passion in us, but they also saw that maybe the con- just having this one herd wasn't sustainable for both of our families if we both ended up back there. And so as part of the succession planning, dad started, Dad and mom started to e- experiment, so to say, with these opportunities. When they had a little time, the kids weren't home yet, how can we diversify now that the cows are in Nevada and not on the home ranch? How can we put put cattle back on the home ranch so it was an opportunity to diversify and maybe if the conventional market fluctuates and we have this natural grass finished stuff and we're still in the process of figuring it out figuring the markets kind of playing in it to see what is sustainable for me and potentially my brother to move back and and take over some of that operation and be involved while my parents are still involved and not not just take over essentially
0: so it sounds like there was a couple different um, um, goals in in starting to diversify. One of one of them was to continue your family's legacy of of agriculture and ranching. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, in order to be able to do that, you have to have a profitable business. Mm-hmm. And I think it's if you've been in agriculture, you're familiar with ag at all. Um, we're all very familiar with the breathtaking volatility that can that can come upon us in this industry, just like that, when the markets fluctuate the way that they do. And so, um, I mean, diversifying for you guys was a way to to help um, to help stabilize your business. Is that
1: a yeah thing to say? It's, it's, yes, absolutely. And it and it gave us the opportunity to to c- grow our cow herd in Nevada too at the same time and see how they can overlap a little bit and then also you know be separate entities if we need them to be as well so yes very very good observation and question so
0: so have you had any pushback um, within the beef industry within your own community of of diversifying like that maybe let's just say purely based on how the beef would be labeled at the end of the at the end of the supply chain
1: Yes, and it's really hard because sometimes you get you get people that aren't like my family and they're they're specialized in in one of these niche markets um and they're really passionate about it and they provide, I believe, an amazing product, but we sometimes get a little pushback that conventional's bad mm-hmm. or some of the conventional guys that we're seeing at the sale barns or are um set by in our cattle um, don't understand the natural side of things and so there's a, there's a big disconnect between the two sometimes while that, that the disconnect too is that they don't understand the overlap that really comes and Catherine a lot of what I see too is if the um, my natural product because we don't use growth hormones we don't use antibiotics but when they get sick we, won't, we treat them because we want to take care of that animal well it throws them out of that natural program Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and so we still want that product because product to go out there because it's safe it's wholesome it's still good and i'll eat it that's what we end (laughs) up eating but then that goes into the conventional thing and you don't get the premium on it but you still are able to sell that animal for for a dollar value and so having that balance um Really, it uh, it all overlaps, and I think people don't understand quite the overlap and the benefit of all of it and how we can use some of these grasses and grass-finish it, but it's not sustainable for everybody's business. And the natural way might work for my family or a few truckloads that we've bought from somebody, but it's not going to work for the whole ranch and the whole big cow herd.
0: Right, and I think that's another, that's another interesting point that we should talk about is that... Um, you know, in our society here in in the United States, um, we are we're a first world country. We have the affluence um, to be able to to pick and choose between the kinds of foods that we want to eat. It's not a question of if we get to eat; it's a question of how we want to eat. Um, and and I think your family has taken advantage of providing for that demand. You you know, beef is in demand and and now there's, there's different types of beef just like across all of agriculture, but you know, you could get organic beef. You have, you know, a school lunch program that just wants a conventional, conventional, um, good value beef on a, in, in a, in a large quantity. Um, you know, you've got, you've got the, the people who, um, maybe want the finer cuts of beef and not just ground beef. And so your family is providing for that choice. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's, part of the American um, condition if you will that that in our businesses we have the opportunity to be able to provide different types of choice within our own sectors and so um, you know bashing ourselves is not maybe not the most effective way that we can we can um, have that consumers can watch us interact with each other
1: absolutely and one reflecting kind of back on the process I was I think in my sophomore year, and I listened to Dr. Gary Smith speak one time. um, Big meat scientist from CSU, and he's part time at Texas A&M too. And he told me, or he told the forum I was in, he said, "I want my grass fed, or I want my corn fed beef, and that's what I want." He goes, "But if the consumer wants the grass fed organic, give it to them." Right. Why are we questioning them? And that really opened my eye. This big meat scientist was like, quick questioning what the con, quick questioning what the consumer wants and give it to them. Provide them the product they want. And that's been able to sustain businesses by provide by meeting the demand of our consumer. It might change if an- the economy changes or people's financial situations change, but. Right now, with the economy the way it is, people are wanting that high quality diversity in their products and let's provide it for them. Yeah, who are we to say you can't have that? <laughs> and this and the safety factor. I know that all of it is safe, but if if the mom goes to Whole Foods and sees the grass finished beef and feels like she is providing that wholesome sustainable product to her kids and she buys beef I'm not gonna question it because she's buying beef and she is putting beef in her freezer. And you know, at the end of the day, beef is beef.
0: <laughs> That's what your goal is: is for people mm-hmm. to eat beef.
1: So and I'm I can go off and off and off on all this because it's it's one of my passions. But Catherine, you you also have some experience in this niche marketing or growing and small versus big and east versus west and <laughs> even. Um, natural and non-GMO as well. So do you want to explain a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I was thinking about the words that we use to describe the, the tension in our industries, and I'm looking back on my family's business history and thinking, man, we've hit nearly about all of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for those of you that don't know, I grew up on a large dairy in Utah, um, but my roots actually started in Connecticut. My parents um, started a dairy in, in Connecticut um, way back in the very early 80s, and they started with just 70 cows, so they started on a very small scale, um, which, you know, was about the size of herds at the time, but they continued to grow. And the reason that they grew um, was, there was a couple of them, but chief among them was that they knew that if they wanted me and my brothers to, be, to even have a passing interest in coming back and being part of the family business, um, there had to be room for all of us. And so they grew from 70 cows, and over about 15 years, they built it to 400 cows in Connecticut, which for that place in time was a very large dairy. Um, but we had 30 different landlords for the ground that we grew our crops on. Um, our family farm was just an hour outside of New York City, and so there was a lot of urban development pressure. Um, my dad's got some pretty funny stories he can tell you about folks um, immigrating to the to the more rural parts of of where we lived um, from the city and and how their idea of what country life should be (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but eventually they realized that um, they weren't able to grow anymore where they were there just wasn't enough room and they wanted to go somewhere where they could grow they could grow um, either through vertical integration simple expansion but they wanted to make sure that my brothers and I had had the choice again it comes back to choice Mm -hmm. right to be able to come back to the farm if we wanted and so um, we moved to Delta, Utah, <laughs> which is sort of an odd place for a whole bunch of um, East Coast people to end up, but it was a very welcoming rural community and they they were recruiting um, large dairies because of the economic benefits that they added to communities. And so we took our 400 cows to Utah and we expanded again. Um, and for most of my growing up years, we milked between 1,200 and 2,000 cows. And um, that was certainly enough to keep us busy. <laughs> um, but my parents also got out of the crop business and wanted to focus just on milking cows um, because they th- they knew that that was where their passion and their skill set lay, and that's what they wanted to be the best at. And so um, we grew again, and my brothers and I grew up working on the dairy. Um, you know, we're familiar with all the ins and outs of it. And then my oldest brother went off to college, and. Um, The workforce left. (laughs) The (laughs) workforce did leave, yep, yep. (laughs) But um, as we got used to that change, my parents got to thinking, holy smokes, 1,500 cows maybe isn't enough work to keep all of us um, busy when Greg does come home. So they bought another dairy right next to us. The opportunity came, and and we expanded again. We doubled our herd size just about overnight, and we were milking 3,000 cows. And that provided um, enough of a line Of income for my brother to be able to come home, um, start a family, and be in business with my parents. And over the last couple years, we've continued to do that. Now we milk about 5,000 cows. Um, So my family has has um, diversified by expansion. We've made ourselves big, um, to be able to support more families. And it's not just my family that our dairy supports, it's, um, you know, the 80 or 90 other employees families that we have as well. So really, you know, sort of a large impact there, but, um, we were talking earlier about the ups and downs in the, in the markets and, um, it's especially true in the, in the dairy market. Um, milk just goes up and down. It goes up and down seasonally. Um, it goes up and down, you know, at the, at the drop of, of any mention of trade wars, anything like that. And, um, historically, milk prices are, are pretty low lately. They have been rising a little bit, but, um, so that volatility is very, very dangerous, obviously. And I told you earlier that my parents had decided to get out of cropping and just focus on dairying. And, um, that helped them to grow and enabled them to build the business to what it is today. But, we realized that that volatility was a huge risk for the number of families that we have involved. And so we made the decision to um, stop shipping to our dairy cooperative and to start shipping directly to a yogurt company, to Dannon. And that has allowed for an incredible amount of growth for us. That's actually the reason that we milk 5,000 cows today is because that demand from Dannon is there and um, we dive a little bit deeper into this, Danon is, um, they're master marketers, right? They have, you know, how many different yogurt lines and and they have stuff for kids and they have stuff for adults and they have really, really sweet stuff and they have stuff that doesn't have any flavoring. Um, well, they were responding to to market demand a few years ago and they decided that their, their producer um, families um, would shift to a non-GMO um, operation. And um, that has caused a lot of consternation in the dairy industry because um, GMOs are something you know GMO fed uh, cows or GMO feeds I suppose are are part of the production model that have allowed dairies to get as large as they have and they they allow for maximum feed efficiency and cows and things like that I can get all into the production <laughs> practices <laughs> I had to stay on track here so anyway Dannon asked us to to become a non-GMO dairy and um they are our milk market, and so we said yes because that's that's where our milk goes. And we could see the the consumer um, requests for for those different um,
1: products. When your family tr- made that transition, did you what were the reaction from the cooperative, from your conventional friends, from the people that you would typically ship to? Yeah, so I mean first
0: off, leaving the cooperative fold was, Um, it was, it it didn't go over well, I guess is the best way to put that. Um, you know, we were, we were seen as leaving the fold and, um, I mean, the two questions we got the most was, how do you think you're going to survive? And, um, why are you, why are you pitting yourself against the rest of us like this? And that was, I mean, those were hard things for us to hear because my parents made this decision, um, with both me and my brothers in the room. Um, and we made this decision to to um, stabilize our business so that that volatility would be ironed out a little bit more. And then, I mean, when we when we got the announcement that we'd be switching to non-GMO, it was a little bit of a startle startlement for us. Um, you know, it it meant a radical um, change in the way that we source our feed and even in the way that our rations are produced and everything like that. But Um, there was a lot of animosity from from our friends in the industry saying you know the science behind GMOs you know that it doesn't harm anybody it doesn't hurt the earth it doesn't hurt the animals you know all of this it's not any better any worse for you and we do know that but this is what our customer Danon has asked us for and they are asking for what their customers you know moms in the grocery store college students whoever people who eat the yogurt have asked them for and the market has demanded that and I mean my family's um, philosophy on this is if the market is asking for it and it doesn't hurt it doesn't harm you your business or you know other other crucial um, considerations give it to them and I think that we were really taken aback by by how how our friends in the industry reacted it was like you know we had taken a knife to them and um, you know Agriculture can so often seem like like you're competing against the guy up the road, but you're not. I mean, you're competing against the marketplace. And the marketplace demanded non-GMO milk, and so that's what we're producing.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's so interesting to hear the big transition. We've just our family just speckles in it a little bit essentially. Um, but to make that big switch and be be labeled and judged for for that switch but how do you see this going forward um, being being from both sides of the situation how do we bridge that gap because like the beef market there's a lot more overlap but the dairy industry it appears to me that they're very segregated essentially you're you're either conventional you're Organic, your grass-fed, or your non-GMO. There's no, there's not a whole lot of overlap.
0: Um, I think I would tend to very much agree with that assessment, and um, you know, you could almost say too that the dairy industry is either very, very niche, where you find, um, you know, chocolate milk in a glass bottle in your little local grocery store or you get the ninety nine gallon jug of white milk that you know we're all used to that, that can feed a lot of people at once um, and I mean both of them are needed um, both of them are obviously wanted because they exist there in the marketplace I think going forward um, diversification is key number one but we can't tear each other apart for diversifying um, because your family made the decision to to diversify in order to sustain your family legacy, your family business. And how can you fault anybody for that? You know, I've got a friend, a really good friend in California, whose family milks um, a much smaller number of cows than I do, and they're organic. And they made that decision to go to an organic system because that was what would mean that they could stay in business. And that, I mean... However it works best for you, as far as production practices go, we ought to be cheering each other on, because people are leaving agriculture at a rapid rate. Um, we all know that there's not very many of us involved in the first place. and. You know, it's just the same thing of tearing each other apart from within. It it doesn't do us any good. There's room for everybody at the table, um, like we were talking about before in this society that we have. We have, we're blessed to be able to have all those choices. We're blessed to be able to produce things, to have that choice to produce in a different way. And I think that, I mean, we have we we've, we've got to. It's just like we said last time. We've got to stand together. or We're going to fall apart. You know, the consumer sees all of the infighting between conventional versus organic and you know somebody says that a certain production practice um, you know isn't it is less safe and it has fewer fewer benefits or you know all of the we know all of those words that that can come into um, arguments between agriculturists within their own sectors and um, that's not true I mean you know our American food system is so safe and so plentiful and so abundant um, we we shouldn't let fear whether that's fear of a different production practice or fear of, of what a consumer is asking for, um, let, us, let us tear ourselves apart.
1: Absolutely. And marketing, in any business you're in, marketing is the key driver to this. And agriculture seems like it's the one industry sometimes that starts shaming other practices in their marketing ploy sometimes. And that's where I have a really hard time standing behind some of these products if we're if we're shaming somebody else I was listening to one of Brene Brown's audiobooks this weekend um, highly recommend her for anybody out there and um, she and she was talking about the shame gremlins but she was talking about moms and shaming each other based on them their parenting practices and how they raise their kids and all this good stuff that we hear all the time and I was like this is agriculture she said do not just because you breastfed your child do not bash the mom that bottle fed her baby. We're all mothers in this together in the fight for this world and what works for me is not going to work for you and what works for you might not work for Joe Farmer down the road. And what what can feed my family or what I can make work with my operation isn't going to be the same. And Maybe somebody's passion is that 80-cal organic dairy where they the only people they need to make that work is their family. Mm-hmm. They don't have to worry about employees. They don't have to worry about bringing somebody else in. Or your dad can quit the bank like mine did and finally go back to farming and ranching full-time and following his passion that he truly loves. You know, diversifying and not, not pointing pointing fingers because personally i do enough shaming myself and have my own shame gremlins i don't need somebody telling me my practices
0: aren't good enough absolutely and i think what you said there at the beginning the uh the what works for you maybe doesn't necessarily work for me but we're all in this together like Mm -hmm. holy smokes that's it isn't it yep i mean that is absolutely it we all have the common goal of producing a safe and wholesome product And as long as it meets those criteria, why do we have to have conflict and infighting about how we get there?
1: And growth. Growth doesn't happen when we're fighting. Growth happens (laughs) when, when we take a tour of the organic farm or the conventional farm that we're not used to and see how productions manage or how you're managing your high expensive feed and reducing shrink with a new commodity barn or we're touring places and we're having those conversations. And at the end of the day, we might not agree 100% with each other. There's things Catherine and I still disagree on and we know we're never going to become on level playing, but we know those topics to agree to disagree and we move on and find solutions to, to balance that out and to balance the different marketplaces it's like we said in our early episodes episodes
0: excuse me our first episode and i think we're just going to keep repeating it through this podcast um we we have got to learn how to get along and to praise and raise each other up um because there's not very many of us and and tearing each other apart from within um is going to lead to our destruction and none of us um Valine and i and anybody who's listening want that and so um you know we're going to continue to have these conversations and and hopefully get people talking about how about what we have in common and and where we can all come together rather than than focusing on what what keeps us apart.
1: So you had brought up um, a while ago or I found it on your Facebook page or something about um, big versus small, good versus bad, and how we keep pointing to that and I I think we brought it up and thought it might be a good. Tie in and closure to this episode. Do you want to read kind of her few key points that she brought up?
0: Yeah. So this was actually a thread that I found about a year ago from Tamar Haspel, and she's a food um, food writer. Dives into food policy, and she also has a small little oyster farm on Cape Cod. And <laughs> I just think what she what she wrote um, really encaptures what we're trying to to focus on here today in our podcast. So she starts out with. Okay, you know what I'm pretty tired of? The trope that small farmers are great and large farms suck. I'm a small farmer, and I'm here to tell you it's utter nonsense. Um, And she goes on to tell you why it's utter nonsense, but I think that the key point is um, that you don't really know, based on production practices, whether someone is or isn't good or bad. And um, she goes on to say that there is one decent indication of a farm doing things well, and that's prosperity. It prospers. And when businesses prosper, they tend to grow. Um, and I think that this is just a really important point to make because um, you can have 50 cows and prosper. You can have, you know, 40 acres and prosper. Um, it's just what you do with those things that, that make the difference. You can have 10,000 cows milking and... It not work. <laughs> it not work, yes. We've heard those stories. And so... Um, you know, successful farmers have the ability to be able to try things because they've been profitable. They can take those risks and chances and diversify and innovate, and that is is more important than size or, or you know, just simple organic versus conventional or, or those simple things. I guess essentially there's more to the story than what the label says, and the label, you know, doesn't indicate whether someone is good or bad or that production practice is good or bad. Um, they are really good at demonizing each other, but we should stop
1: that. <laughs> well, and there's more to the story than what the label has to say, and this goes for anything you're ever doing, um, is is reading the labels, but also knowing that there's more to the label than what, what says, and there's more more than what goes on production-wise, personality-wise, than what the label says, and each family has their own story, so don't let labels, don't let... You're where you're sending your beef, where you're sending your milk, control what you do and how you do it. Don't let it define you. Continue to do things for the betterment of the industry, betterment of your family, and the betterment
0: of agriculture as a whole. We're all in this together. Um, don't let don't let different production practices and labels um, take away the the incredible bond and blessing that we have as agriculturists. Don't let that. Um, prevent you from from building new relationships and seeking out new ways to do
1: things. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Millennial Ag Podcast. Feel free to reach out to us, provide feedback, and submit your questions. Our email address is millennialag.com, That is katherine with a -A -A k-a-t-h-a-r-i-n-e. And please follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Also, rate us on your favorite podcast platform.